The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Jesus has called us to demonstrate to the world that we are his by the way that we love one another, right? By the way that we love each other within the body of Christ. And this morning as we come together, at the end of the sermon, we're going to take communion. And in that communion, we're going to remember the broken body of our Lord, his shed blood for us, and, and his, his hope for us as a church, as a church around the world, that we might be one, that we might be unified brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other and live at peace with one another, live in harmony with one another. I'd invite you, if you didn't get a chance to, pick up some communion elements at the back as we prepare for communion. But as Jesus has called us to this unity, this harmony, this peace with one another within the body of Christ, this is not easy, is it? It's it's incredibly difficult actually and and just as I was reflecting on on what we were going to be talking about today this concept of forgiveness forgiving one another it's something that I can talk about kind of casually and give you some some good ways to to think about forgiveness and forgiving one another until I consider the type of things that you all have to forgive consider the the trials and and the tribulations that many of you have walked through in your life the things that come to mind when we talk about forgiveness that are so difficult. So hard. But God has called us to this for our good, to speak the truth in love to one another, to confront when things are wrong. And so last week we began this discussion of of talking about having these difficult conversations for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, rebuking, reproving, speaking the truth in love, not for our good, but for the good of those that are in our lives out of love. And so I, I, I wonder this morning, how many of you entered into difficult conversations last week? where you felt the call, the stir from last week's sermon to step up and and to step into situations that were pretty uncomfortable but full of love for the people that you were confronting. And and as I thought about this week, I actually had the chance to hear from many of you texts and calls uh, about your life situations, and and they're pretty complicated, pretty uh, pretty messy. And I, I honestly really don't have a lot of answers for the specifics other than to pray for God's wisdom as we go about this. But one thing I couldn't help but think last week as we sent you out with this concept of rebuke and reproof, reproof and humility, with grace, with relationship, with, with the right timing, was that we basically gave you the recipe for a cake and left out the critical ingredient in Christian conflict. Do you know what that is? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And so, so it was like we sent you out with something. So I, I hope you, you didn't blow things up even more in some of your, your family conflicts or, or relational conflicts because we need forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key ingredient in Christian conflict to, res, to, to basically do what God has called us to do and to reflect what Christ has done for us. This weekend, I had the opportunity to be at a retreat with a bunch of alumni from my college guys who played soccer together. There were about 30 of us in a house. And we came together and we were discussing man things, you know. The topic of the weekend was vulnerability. (laughs) Vulnerability. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a buzzword. Everyone talks about vulnerability right now. But but what we reflected on was that to have true community, to be like a family, uh, what we've been talking about here at church, to have that, you have to have vulnerability. 
You have to have relationship with each other. You have to have intentionality and actually care to be invested in each other's lives. And you actually have to let your guard down and allow yourself to be in the type of situation where you have the potential to be harmed. That's what real family is like. That's what real relationship is, is like. It's vulnerable. And as these guys who are these, these strong men, these, these leaders in ministry or in their businesses, uh, a couple of them shared testimonies of, of ways they've been, uh, just how their life has been difficult. As they were vulnerable, there were a couple things that, that they spoke about. They talked about dealing with loss, even loss of children. They talked about um, marriage and, and the difficulties that that, that brings. They, they talked about uh, a lot of things relationally, doubts, but, but things are relationally that were very difficult too. And, and some had the opportunity to present to us just this process of, of pain and harm and then forgiveness and reconciliation. And, uh, and, and what was very clear is that it's not easy. It's not easy. And yet Jesus calls us to this. So let me ask you, can we be vulnerable today a little bit? I'm not gonna ask you to, to speak up or raise your hand, but, but is everything okay in your heart? Is there anyone that you're angry toward? Have you been having imaginary conversations in your head with someone a lot lately? It's a sure sign that that maybe there's something there that needs to be addressed. Is there anyone in your life right now that if they failed or if life just didn't go so well for them that that you would actually enjoy that? Like you would feel good about that? Is there anyone in your life, somebody maybe even that is not with us anymore, that is no longer alive, that, that you need to forgive? Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Ephesians 4.32 sums up Christian community this way. It says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are to be kind. Is that a word that describes you? Are you kind? We are to be tenderhearted. Is your heart soft toward other people and forgiving? Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, we can forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And in Matthew 18, Jesus gives his disciples some more instruction on how to deal with sin and conflict. And he talks about what we talked about last week. If, if your brother sins against you or if you've sinned against your brother, go and make it right. Deal with it. Deal with it. So here in Matthew 18, if you could turn in your Bibles to it, we'll, we'll look at some more about what Jesus says about this. Go and win your brother back by rebuking him if necessary, and for giving him. And so I think often we walk away from sermons like that, like last week, and we have objections. We say, but, but not in my situation. Or it's more complicated than that. And, and thank God that Scripture reveals that reality as the disciples object. They object to this teaching from Jesus right away. Peter, love Peter, he, he doesn't buy this completely. He, he's, he's wondering about this, and he likes to, to speak his thoughts out loud. And Peter came up to him in verse 21 and said to him, Lord, how often, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's a good question from Peter, right? Someone has, has wronged me. They continually wrong me. They wrong me when I'm with them. They wrong me when I'm not with them. And, and, and yet I'm supposed to forgive them? The rabbis, Jesus, they say forgive three times. Are you saying that we're supposed to do beyond that? Like up to seven, seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or in other passages, he says 70 times seven. 
And so is Jesus giving us a limit? Like, oh, that's number 78. You're done. No more. No, he's, he's prescribing a lifestyle, not a limit to our forgiveness. And, and we would love a limit. We would love to have a limit to know that we've done enough. We've, we don't have to do any more until, until we are the ones in need of forgiveness. Jesus goes on. He tells this parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so I'd like you to follow along. I'm just going to read through these verses and, and listen to the story that Jesus tells. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. The king represents God in this case, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot. That's like six Bitcoin or something like that. It's a lot of money. And verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is a lot less than what we had just been talking about. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus often talks about sin in terms of relational and spiritual debt to one another. He, he, he talks about what we do if another person wrongs us and incurs a debt. And what forgiveness is, is not ignoring the debt. It's not forgetting about the debt or excusing the debt. But rather, it's taking the cost of that debt upon yourself so that the debtor no longer needs to pay it. The master absorbs that loss to himself. When we're sinned against, when we're harmed, the options are the same. Someone has to pay that debt. It just doesn't evaporate. Someone must pay the debt. Someone bears the cost. And so in forgiveness, what we do is we choose to suffer ourselves so that the other person doesn't have to. That's forgiveness. As, as we deal with our side of, of the conflict, there are really just two options available to us. We can forgive or we can resent. We can forgive or we can become more and more bitter, more and more resentful. And what bitterness says is you wronged me and you owe me. Something was taken from you. I don't know what was taken from you. Maybe, maybe you were betrayed in some way by someone. You, your reputation was tarnished. Maybe uh, you, your parents were really disappointing. Maybe... Uh, your dignity, your childhood, your innocence, there is a debt that needs to be repaid and the perpetrator must pay it. And so when we're wronged and we're resentful and we're bitter, we make the perpetrator pay by, by being unkind to them, by hurting them, by retaliating, maybe by raising our voices at them or doing the opposite, avoiding them, being cold toward them, hoping that something bad happens to them or at the very least that those good things stop happening for them and we resent them. 
Maybe you've heard the statement. You've all heard the statement. Resentment is like the poison we drink, hoping that it will kill someone else, right? You've heard that. But, but what is amazing is when the, the quote-unquote scientific community catches up with what Scripture has already taught us. And, and there are actually a, a number of studies that show from Johns Hopkins University, from Harvard Health, that, that say that unforgiveness and resentment lead to chronic illness, increased blood pressure, anxiety, and depression. And Conversely, forgiving attitudes and behaviors have measurable positive impacts on human health. I was reading Harvard Health, which cited studies and trials that suggest forgiveness is associated with, forgiveness is associated with lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, decreased hostility, reduced substance abuse, higher self-esteem, and greater life satisfaction. Now, can you afford for your health to be unforgiving? Doesn't seem like it, right? There is a, a direct correlation between our, our mental and even our physical well-being and the resentment or the forgiveness that, that fills our lives and our hearts. Resentment is literal poison, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, and it leads towards death and forgiveness toward life. So what is forgiveness? In its simplest sense, it's this. Number one, recognizing that something was taken from you. Number two, understanding what was taken from you. And number three, deciding that the person that harmed you doesn't owe you anymore. Debt canceled. So that's, mom, you don't owe me anymore for the way you treated me. Dad, you don't owe me anymore for not being part of my life. Parents, you don't owe me anymore for getting divorced. Friend, you don't owe me anymore for lying about me. And even if you don't deserve it, I forgive you. That's what forgiveness is. So, so we know what forgiveness is, but I think in order to properly understand it and apply it even further, we need to understand a few things that forgiveness is not. In theology, we call this, this when we study God this way, we call this the apophatic method, where we, we basically start with, well, God's really hard to understand. So, so can we at least start with what he is not? He is not finite, for example. And we're going to do the same thing with the concept of forgiveness. We're going to help you better understand it by saying what forgiveness is not. And none of this will be new. You've heard me say these things before in one form or another, but I worked, again, really hard this week on an acronym for you so, so you can follow along. And the acronym is really straightforward. It's FORGIVE. Make sense, right? We're going to use this acronym FORGIVE to talk about Ironically, what forgiveness is not. Let's start with F. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We've all heard that phrase, forgive and forget. Thank God he's designed us to have a short memory for pain. That's why I have four children. Uh, that's, that's why we, we do these things and we're able to recover from them is because we don't remember pain for very long. But, but while this, good, this sentiment of forgive and forget is, is really good, we don't actually have power over that. We can't actually decide to forget, can we? I'd ask you to, to forget that person that bothered you or how they, they wronged you. And when I do that, it just brings it more into the forefront of your mind. But we read in, in passages like Jeremiah uh, where God casts our sins away and remembers them no more. But what we need to grasp there is that, that God is not, uh, he, he doesn't have a memory problem. Right? He, he's omniscient. He's not forgetful. He knows all. So, so what does Jeremiah mean when he describes God this way? It means that despite what we've done, God no longer calls those things to mind. God makes a decision 
to declare us righteous by putting the just punishment for our sin upon himself. He absorbs the debt and he holds it against us no more. And so so the same is true of us in forgiveness. Psychologically speaking, we can't just decide to forget. Forgetting is not a choice. And over the course of our lives, in God's grace, we may forget many things. We may forget many pains. But none of those things will be forgotten through trying to forget. And so what we do instead is we choose, as 1 Corinthians says, to keep no record of wrongs. To choose not to catalog every wrong done against us in order to bring it up at a later time. But forgetting may not happen. And so if you've offered forgiveness to a brother or sister, but that painful memory continues to resurface, that's not an opportunity for you to beat yourself up. That's an opportunity for you to go back to the Lord and, and, and renew yourself in forgiveness to take it to the Lord in prayer. Forgiveness, F, is not forgetting. Forgiveness is, oh, forgiveness is not once and done. It's not once and done, it's every day. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that forgiveness is supposed to be this this one-time experience in which we we just say, I've forgiven this person and then everything just goes away and we never struggle again with that person. We we never have an issue anymore. But, But the truth is, it's much more difficult than that, isn't it? Because people may continue to hurt us. They may continue to harm us. They may continue to have a very unwelcome presence in our lives. And and circumstances may also stir up old memories, old wounds, old hurts. But when that happens, we need to remember the words of Jesus to Peter in Matthew 18. As many as seven times, Lord? No, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Indicating that Jesus is saying, this is not a limit. This is a lifestyle. You are to forgive continually. And as resentment wells up within you, you are to forgive again. Forgiveness is all at once. It's all at once. And it's every day. Daily repentance. Daily forgiveness. R. This one's maybe going to be surprising. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Not necessarily. Maybe this this past week you entered into difficult conversations and and my hope is that you entered in with humility and grace, uh, with investment and relationship at the right time and and I hope you were met with a repentant spirit and if so, that's amazing. When you come and you confront sin, when you own your side of it, when when you offer uh, forgiveness and the other person just doesn't want to respond, that can happen. That can happen. You know, sometimes it all works out perfectly and there's this deepening of the relationship, but often it does not. When we pursue relationships by speaking the truth and love, sometimes we're not met with repentance, but we're met with resistance. Luke 17, 3 says this, we read this last week, it says, if he repents, forgive him. If? If, didn't Jesus just tell us to forgive to this massive standard? And so what does that mean that our forgiveness is to be conditional? Is it? Is it to be conditional on the other person's response? And the answer is actually, yes, in some sense. The Lord here is describing restoring a broken relationship, and he's explaining how to do it. And so there's two things going on here. There's a a forgiveness that needs to take place within our hearts that is unconditional and absolute. Before a relationship to be restored, there has to be repentance. There has to be a, a, a turning from sin. So if you're the one that's wrong, repent. And if your brother repents, you forgive. But both aspects, repentance and forgiveness, are necessary for reconciliation, aren't they? 
And you know this. This is just the normal rhythm of Christian living. If, if you're in a healthy marriage, what we're going to do on a daily basis pretty much whenever there's conflict or disagreement, we are going to own, even if we're only 2% wrong in a, in a disagreement, we're going to own our 2% and be 100% responsible for that 2%. We're going to apologize where we are wrong. We are going to confront what was wrong, repent, and forgive each other. But it, this is also this unconditional forgiveness that ought to take place in our hearts regardless of the other person's response. So there's, there's kind of two things going on here. We are to forgive within our own hearts, but for the relationship to be restored, there has to be both repentance and forgiveness. The other person has to respond. It takes two. It takes two. So then we see that it takes one to repent, one to forgive, two to reconcile. And the unfortunate truth is you can do everything right. You, you can, well, probably not. You probably won't. But you can do your best to repent of where you are wrong, to rebuke in love. You can offer forgiveness, and the other person may have no interest in reconciling. And so what do you do? Some people will never apologize. They will never repent. So what do you do if the other person won't Matthew 18, 15 says, if he listens to you, this is best outcome, best case, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Witnesses, not just people who you've told about the situation. Witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This means that we, we continue the pursuit, by necess if necessary, by bringing in other witnesses, by maybe going to the church. That means in our setting, going to a pastor or an elder to talk through something, to pray through and, and to sort through an issue and, and working through this together. But be careful. Be careful if you're that third party. Be careful and, and cautious about getting roped into other people's conflicts and other people's situations. One of my favorite proverbs and one that I, I seek to apply often, especially when confronted with, with other people's issues where they want to rope me in and pull me in, is this. It says in Proverbs 26, 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. It's not a good idea, right? Don't grab passing dogs by the ears. It's not going to go well for you. So if you're a witness to something, you may need to be involved. But I would encourage you not to insert yourself into conflicts that are not your own. But if you have to, if you have to be part of these things, if, if you're involved, be wise, be patient, be objective, and see your role in it as not to entrench yourself on a side against someone else but to be part of bringing warmth and reconciliation back to a relationship. What we attack is the problem, not the person. The problem, not the person. If there's still no repentance, we can pray for salvation. When Jesus says that we are to regard this person as a Gentile and a tax collector, I want you to remember the way Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors. He loves them but they're just not yet his followers. And sometimes when, when we see in someone a complete lack of repentance where they don't seem to get it, it may just be that they're not actually a follower of Jesus. A in which case, our move is to pray for them, for their salvation, that they might be, be found and made new in Christ. Pray for salvation. What if the person that wronged me is not a believer? I, I got that question a few times this week. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So then we have a, a responsibility to strive for peace even with people who are not believers. However, we need to recognize that those who are not Christians may not feel compelled to offer forgiveness. They may not feel compelled to repent, in which case we take what we're given, 
We seek to live graciously and peaceably as possible with, with someone who will not do their part, but we as Christians do our part. Do your part. Last week, we ended with this idea of it's your move. Forgiveness is, reconcil- is, is essential for reconciliation, but forgiveness will not always bring reconciliation. But we as, as maturing believers in Christ will do our part. In, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, take care of your side of the street, right? And that's a good principle. Clean up your side of the street before you start trying to clean up the other person's side of the street. Deal with your percent of the issue. Even if you're only 2% responsible, you take 100% responsibility. You do your part. G, forgiveness is not granting instant trust. Forgiveness, I forgive you, does not mean I trust you. Now, we hope that it will lead to that. And what forgiveness is, is it's a willingness to try to reestablish trust, to build back relationship that is broken. And in Christian community, within the church, we should seek to rebuild trust. But this takes time. Sometimes it takes a long time, and sometimes it can take years or may not happen this side of eternity. It may be wise at times to, to have permanent relational boundaries in place because some people are simply dangerous. An abuser may be forgiven, but does that mean that the victim needs to be around them ever again? No. Now, God has the power to bring about miraculous things, but I would say that, that in some cases, we forgive We forgive, but there are consequences to certain actions. If someone threatens my children, I can forgive them, but they will not babysit my kids. Does that make sense? Forgiveness is not instant granting of trust, but what it means is it means the potential for a restoration of trust, and and we pursue that as best we can. Immediately restoring trust in someone may actually enable sinful behavior. That that person who wrongs us, and we say, I trust you, and they wrong us, and we trust them. And and again, and again, and again, and the cycle goes on. So forgiveness does not always equate to instant granting of trust, but can be marked by a willingness to engage in a process of restoring trust. But trust requires repentance. Repentance. I. Forgiveness is not ignoring the pain of an offense. Sinful actions have consequences. And though we can forgive, often the consequences of those sins will have painful effects. Some of you have suffered in horrible, tragic ways. Some of you have dealt with things that I cannot even begin to understand. So so when you are considering, Mark, you're calling me to forgive. You don't know what I've gone through. And I think that's true. And all I can say is, is that I'm, I'm sorry. For those of you that are dealing with unimaginable pain. And so what we do in forgiveness is we don't ignore the pain. We don't disregard the pain, but we choose not to inflict that same pain on the one who caused us harm. In some sense, you may have a right to retribution, right? But what we do in forgiveness is we choose to surrender that right We choose a form of voluntary suffering, a form of self-denial to be like Christ. V, forgiveness is not vacating justice. It's not vacating justice. In, In legal terminology, vacating judgment, it's a reversal or an overturning of a previous court decision. And forgiveness doesn't neglect God's justice. God loves justice. 
God is a God of love and a God of justice, perfectly loving and perfectly just. And so when we forgive, we don't close our eyes to moral atrocities. We don't pretend that sin doesn't have consequences and we don't diminish what was done, but we determine to let God be the one who enacts the justice, to let God be the one who is in control of the justice. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will bring about justice. He does this through natural consequences, which are, are very serious. He'll enact justice through earthly systems, such as, as courts and governments, and he will enact justice through eternal consequences. So at times when you're sinned against in a serious way, authorities may need to be involved, and that does not mean that you have not forgiven. I think some of the most beautiful examples of forgiveness that we've seen are, are these news stories in which there's a family facing someone who has murdered a family member in the court. And they offer forgiveness in the moment. And it's just overwhelmingly beautiful to see the forgiveness of Christ through people to people who do not deserve it. And that forgiveness is offered, it's real, and it's healing to both parties. And yet the justice system continues to move continues to work out the natural consequences of these types of harmful decisions. Forgiveness is not vacating justice. We trust God. We trust God with the justice. We, we take the, the right to avenge out of our own hands and we place it in, in the rightful hands of God. E. Lastly, forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a decision. It's not an emotion. It's a deci decision. What do I mean by that? I mean that forgiveness is granted before it is felt. If you want to grow in love and affection for your spouse in marriage, you know this. One of the best ways to do that is to act in love toward them. I don't mean pretend you're in love with them. I mean do loving actions towards them. The same is true with forgiveness. It is granted before it is felt. It's not an emotion. It's a decision because feelings change every day. And the feelings of resentment or bitterness by the grace of God, they can go away. Forgiven wounds heal over time. But more than a feeling, forgiveness is a choice. And it's a choice that drives our actions. And so, so in forgiveness, we choose, we decide to do three things. Number one, we refuse to harm the perpetrator directly. We forgive them by refusing to harm them directly. That means we don't insult them. We don't yell at them. We don't physically harm them. We don't give them the silent treatment and emotionally abuse them. We don't try to control them or act superior to them. We refuse in forgiveness to directly harm the one who has harmed us. Number two, we forgive by refusing to harm the perpetrator indirectly. That means we stop with the gossip. We stop with the jokes, the insults, the passive-aggressive posts on social media. We refuse to claim that we've forgiven someone while seeking to punish that person behind the scenes. Number three, we forgive by refusing to foster ill will in our hearts. And this is really hard. But it means that we choose to stop cataloging the wrongs against us to stop thinking about those things and calling them to mind again and again. We stop stewing on these things. We determine to change the channel, to, to, to close that tab and to move to a different one in our lives. And I know this is hard because people come to mind, wrongs come to mind, and it can be really difficult to process as we're seeking to forgive people and to not continually build a case against them of resentment and bitterness in our own minds. And so one of the best things you can do to stop thinking about something or someone all the time is to just do something else. 
If you want to think something else, you need to do something else. You need to fill your mind with truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of his promises, and and, and perhaps fill your life with actually doing something. If you sense yourself stewing in resentment towards someone, maybe that's the time to to get up and and take a walk, to pursue a hobby, to, to get involved in activity and fellowship with other believers in community that will retrain your mind not to dwell in bitterness towards the person you're forgiving. And if that person continues to come to mind, here's something that scripture tells us to do. It says, bless those who persecute you. It instructs us to pray for our enemies. And there's an amazing thing that, that can happen if you would try this, whoever your enemy is in life. Pray God's blessing on them. There's something amazing that happens when we pray God's blessing on those who have harmed us that, that just causes us to melt in humility, our pride to evaporate, and our trust in the Lord to increase. We can even pray blessing upon those who we would otherwise be bitter toward. So we know what forgiveness is, we know what it is not, and the question this morning facing each of us is this, will you forgive? Will you do it? Will you do your part? I think we all have objections. We all have things that make us hesitate. We all have unique circumstances, just as Jesus' disciples did. And, And when they hear Jesus say this in Luke 17, when he's teaching them on forgiveness and rebuke, their response is kind of interesting. They say, Lord, increase our faith. They're saying, this is impossible. I I can't do this. Increase our faith. Jesus responds to them, if if you had even the faith of a mustard seed, a very small seed of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Jesus is saying that your ability to forgive is not dependent on you. If you have even an ounce of faith, God can do in your life the impossible. Because it's not the amount of your faith that matters. It's the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is God Almighty. Do you have broken relationships this morning? Do you feel like there's relationships in which you cannot do anything to fix it? Do we believe that God can fix it? Do we believe that he is able? He is able. He is able. So we say, I can't. And Jesus calls us to a grain of faith. He can Because I have faith in God and not in myself, I will forgive out of obedience to him. Maybe we say, I won't in our pride. And Jesus says that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. In other words, whether you like this or not, whether you choose to forgive or not has much more to do with your relationship with God than it does that other person. And so this is an act of obedience. And in our pride, we can say, I won't do this, I won't do this. And and Jesus would say to you, I am king. Do what I say. Why? Is he just a, a master who orders us around? No, Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is a master who went to a cross to forgive our sins. He died in our place to cancel our debt so that we might have an opportunity to be reconciled to God. When Jesus hung on a cross, broken and bloodied, his final words, some of his final words were words of forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he gave his own life, he was doing it to forgive. Why? Out of love for you. He was willing to forgive by taking the entire debt that was owed onto himself. And in view of that mercy, how then can we not forgive? I'm going to invite the band up here and we're going to respond to the Lord. And when you're ready, we're going to take communion. 
And as we do so, I would just invite you to consider where do you need to forgive? Where do you need to go and be reconciled to a brother or sister who has perhaps wronged you? And I would invite you to reflect on the forgiveness that we have been offered through the cross. If you peel back the top layer of your container, it'll reveal a way for representing God's, Jesus Christ's body, which was broken for you. And the juice represents his blood, which was shed for you. And so the band is going to begin to play a song, and I would invite you, when you're ready, before the Lord, to take, eat, in remembrance of what Christ has done for you. And to drink, in remembrance of Christ's shed blood for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to work in our midst. Lord, we can do nothing apart from the power of your spirit. We need you desperately, Lord. So I pray you would move in ways in which we cannot, that you would change us in ways that we've been unable. And I pray that we would grow in a depth of understanding of your grace and forgiveness towards each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name.